Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys this morning. I hope you guys are doing well. I uh, hope you guys survived the uh, aftermath of yesterday. I know a lot of you guys were stoked. A lot of you guys were thinking and maybe even dreaming about a certain game all week uh, this past week, right? Uh, and so you guys have been quoting Bible verses of comfort all on Facebook the last 24 hours, right? I've seen it. The Lord binds up the brokenhearted, right? He comforts those who are afflicted, all right? Well, we're going to be in Genesis 3 this morning, all right? As you guys are turning there, I'll just say, you know, a lot of us were thinking about one thing and one thing only all week, you know? Uh, new and national media attention, not just local, but national, was all about one particular game all week long. And so for many of you guys, it's hard to think about anything else, right? Uh, Many times it's hard to focus on school, hard to focus on anything other responsibilities you had until 2.30 on Saturday, all right? Which I know didn't go the way that we had hoped, but much of our hopes and our hearts were focused on that all week. And so in the midst of all that static, all that attention, I'll tell you guys, there was something I caught wind of, something that caught my attention in my mind, my heart this week, that I had previously not heard of at all, all right? Uh, There's a particular so social, cultural evil that I had no idea of that was going on that really got brought to my attention, all right? In fact, I even did a little research on this issue and would come to find out that many are describing this particular social injustice as really something that is a plight that haunts our society, all right? Something that is a curse to the human condition that really takes no prisoners, has no moral compass, all right? In fact, the Center for Disease Control has said that 4.7 million men within the next 24 hours will terrify a loved one because of this particular issue, Some of you guys may have an idea of what I'm talking about. I had no idea what was going on in this whole discussion until I was driving down Texas Avenue this week, all right, heading into Grace on a normal morning uh, off to work, and I would notice on the back of a two-story white home right along Texas Avenue was a banner, all right? Some of you guys know that banner. Some of y'all saw that banner this week, and it said, Nick Saban wears cargo shorts. I thought to myself, man, I'm all for some good trash talking. I love some good trash talking, but... Knocking him because of his fashion, really? Like, that's kind of weak, right? In fact, I thought, you may knock him for his X and O's, knock him for how we're going to crush him, knock him for the fact that Johnny Football is going to run all over them, right? Which he still did, thank you, all right? Uh, But because of his fashion, really? All right, I understand women discussing fashion, right? Women debating, really, hey, what will be the fashionable boot line this this year, right? It always changes every year. What's going to be the fashionable boot? But men discussing fashion, I had no clue the kind of debate and the discussion that was going on about cargo shorts, all right? Some of you guys may not either, I'm going to kind of bring you up to it, but there's a group called Chubbies that has brought forth a new kind of short, a short that is much shorter, much tighter, all right, for guys, all right? And they have targeted cargo shorts as the great cultural evil, all right? Uh, they've targeted cargo shorts as a thigh-restricting horror that haunts our society, all right? Now, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> I think men's thighs need to be hidden away, and I'm just fine with that, all right? I don't think we need more man thigh out there, all right? I don't think, I don't know what's going on here, all right? And I think of all the cultural evils that really address, I don't know that man thigh and cargo shorts really is the issue that really should be capturing our attention, all right? But Cargo Embargo and Chubbies has really had a masterful campaign to go right at these things to highlight a kind of shorts that's now going to be shorter, tighter, whole new kind of ball game, all right? Now, As we look at our culture at large, we would all admit, right, that there's cultural evils going on. I don't know that cargo shorts should be in the same sentence as cancer and sex trafficking, right? But there are evils that are going on within our culture at large, right? We talked last week that really God created humanity. He created the creation, and then he handed the task of culture to humanity. He said, create and cultivate on my behalf so that I'm glorified. We said last week that culture is inherently good. But this week we're going to look at the fact that really as we look at our culture, no one would argue. As we look at our world at large, no one would argue that something has gone awfully awry. That there's injustices, there's crimes, there are things that God did not originally intend as we look at our culture at large. And so the question is why? What's happened? And not just what's happened, but ultimately then how do we stand against such cultural evils? What do we resist and how do we go about it? This morning, we're going to start in Genesis 3. We're going to work our way to Genesis 11. And I want to answer kind of three basic questions as we came off of last week's passage looking in Genesis 1. This week, I want us to answer three basic questions, and they're this. How does sin distort culture? Last week, we said that God created not just humanity, not just the creation, but he created in the very task of culture. And we said that culture was inherently good. And so this morning, I want to ask kind of the flip question, then what's happened to culture though, right? How did sin as it entered the picture really distort culture itself? Not just the creation, not just humanity, but the task of culture as well. Secondly, I want to ask the question, how does God respond to culture's corruption? What does God do in light of how sin distorts and changes culture? And then lastly, what do we do? 
How does sin distort culture? Secondly, how does God respond to culture's corruption? And then thirdly, how are we to respond to culture's corruption as well? What are we to do? All right, that's where we're going to head this morning, beginning in Genesis 3. I want you guys to see how sin enters the picture, a passage that you guys know familiar, familiar, but I want to highlight it for you guys as well. Genesis 3, chapter 1, all right? You guys are going to see in a sense, how does sin impact culture at large, all right? Specifically looking in the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman responds to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Satan shows up to the woman and Satan does what Satan always does, not just to Adam and Eve, but to you and I. Satan's move here is what he does all the time, all right? He always diminishes God's amazing provision and he always exalts and highlights God's prohibition, all right? God had created the garden and he said to Adam and Eve, you may have any tree in the garden, all of the trees. It's not like there's just 12 trees, all right? Incredibly lavish garden. And God says to humanity, they are all yours. They're all yours for you to enjoy, for you to partake in, for you to participate, to be sustained by. But there's one tree in the middle of the garden that you are not to eat from. Satan comes and says to the woman, has God told you you cannot eat from any tree of the garden, right? Any tree? That's not at all what God said. What's Satan doing to Adam and Eve though? He's diminishing God's amazing provision and he's highlighting God's prohibition, right? God does that over and over again. Notice where God goes, or Satan goes next to, the, uh, to Adam and Eve. Verse four, the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he not just contradicts God's promises and God's statements, de- declaration, but he also appeals to Adam and Eve's pride. He says, God did not say this. This won't happen if you do it. He completely overturns and distorts what God had said. And secondly, he appeals to Adam and Eve for them to be something that they were not to be. He appeals to their pride. And because of that, they will land themselves in the most foolish of situations. Have you guys ever been in a situation where someone appealed to your pride and you landed yourself in the most awkward and foolish situation? Even this summer, there's a guy who's about 15 years older than me, uh, kind of a bit, bit of a mentor, a guy that I really look up to, respect, and he's always challenging me to work out with him, all right? Because he knows he's just going to own me physically, all right? Well, I caught word that he had incredible pain in his elbows, all right? And so that anything he did with his elbows, he just couldn't do. He couldn't stomach it. He would be absolutely, in a sense, that's his kryptonite. And so I challenged him in the middle of the church offices this summer, to a push-up battle, all right? I wanted to show him I was better than him, even though he had 15 years of age on me, all right? And before I know it, we are on the floor in a church office doing a push-up battle, all right? And what I didn't realize was he was even more prideful than me. And so no matter the pain, he was going to keep going. And sure enough, we are 20 to 30 push-ups into this thing. This is not at all what I intended to happen, all right? I thought there's no way we'd even be doing one push-up, right? And so now we're 20 to 30 push-ups in this. And I begin looking into his eyes as we do push-ups, all right? And I began to realize he's not going to quit. There is no quit in him, all right? And so I finally just decided to fold my cards and admit that I had no idea what I was getting myself into because pride always lands us into awkward situations, right? Where we just appear foolish. Abed and Eve's pride will be appealed to and notice what they do, verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable uh, to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband and he ate. Verse six is really where the first time we see sin enter the picture for humanity and into the garden. Previously up until this point, we've had absolute perfection in the creation. Uh, And now here sin enters in. And the first thing that we see is that when sin enters into not just humanity, but into the culture at large, there's always therefore a tendency to consume. If you guys remember last week, we said that what did God do? God created, he cultivated the creation. He then handed that creation to humanity and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And as you do that, rule and reign over my creation. May you continue to create and may you continue to cultivate thereby establishing my glory on the earth. Instead, what we have happening here is sin enters the picture and instead of creating and cultivating, now humanity is taking and consuming. The first step, the first tendency we see when sin enters the picture is now humanity in respect and response to the creation and culture has a tendency to consume, to take what is not theirs, to take it when they want it and how they want it. The first thing we see in Genesis 3 is that when sin enters into culture, there's an innate human tendency to consume. All right. And not just to consume, but also to cover. Notice verse seven. Then the the eyes of them were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. 
If you guys remember with us last week, we said that what, what is culture? How do you define culture? There's amazing definitions all over the place for how you could define culture. Often they're essays, right? But if you can't define something in 10 words, you really don't have your hands around it. We said last week, if you want to define culture, here's a great definition that we'll work off of and we'll use for much of the semester. We said that culture is what human beings make of the world. Culture is what human beings make of the world. And so we talked about that in two different ways. One was in sense of what actually humanity actually manufactures. What do they actually make? You cannot highlight and identify a culture until you really look at what is humanity actually producing and making. How do they take the natural resources of the creation and what do they produce and what do they create? And from that, you begin to get a sense of what culture really is. Here in verse seven is the first cultural good created post-sin. It's the first thing that humanity does is they take the natural resources. It's the first thing that they create. And what do you see that they're doing with it? Are they creating and cultivating in a way to establish the glory of God? Are they creating and cultivating for a whole different motive? They realize they're naked So they take the natural resources of the garden and they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves because they're hiding from one another. When sin enters into culture, it has an innate tendency for humanity, therefore, to consume and to cover from one another. Because of sin, as we enter into culture, because of what we therefore make, what we often begin to see is that it's all about wanting to take what is not ours when we want it and how we want it as individuals but it's also all about a tendency sometimes to, con- to cover or to hide. Adam and Eve will, c- will, will create something that will allow them to hide from one another. And if that wasn't enough, they're going to do the same thing with God in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Imagine that. Here's the creation itself. They've now begun to use the creation to create fig leaves to cover themselves from one another. And now they're using the trees themselves to hide and cover themselves from God. How absolutely insane and crazy is this, right? Notice verse nine. Notice what happens next. Then the Lord God called in the man and said, where are you? As if God does not know where the man and the woman are, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. He knows exactly where they are. But the question highlights the fact that there's something wrong in their relationship, that highlights the fact that they are trying to hide from him. Not that, they can't, not that he can't see. Verse 10, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. Uh, some of you guys know that we have a four-year-old girl. Her name's Caroline. And uh, over the last uh, few months, she's developed a new pattern, all right? So uh, she, uh, she kind of gets herself up in the morning. She can go to the bathroom or on herself in the morning. She, not on herself, but for herself. It's horrible, all right? She'll never forgive me if she hears this. Uh, but she can change her clothes. She can even get her cereal out. She's becoming more and more self-sufficient, all right? Some mornings, in fact, she will kind of get herself up and she'll begin to do her own thing. She'll come out of her room and she'll not find us in the kitchen. She doesn't find us outside. And so she'll begin to lie in wait for us. She'll begin to hide out waiting for us to come out and so at some point from another part of the house or from our bedroom we'll begin to walk through looking for her and all of a sudden out of nowhere she will scream to the loudest that she can to absolutely startle the bejeebers out of us and it gets us every single time but what's hilarious is this has become a learned skill Uh, about two years ago when she first learned to play hide and go seek she would uh, actually do everything that you're not supposed to do with hide and go seek so she would hide in absolute plain sight we tell her to go hide I count to 10 seconds I turn around and she's like right right in front of me, right? We're like, no, no, hide underneath something, behind something, do something like that. And then, then she'd hide, right? Like underneath a stool, right? Which you can totally see her, right? And she would then hide in the same spot over and over again, right? We would have to teach her how to learn to play hide and go seek. In fact, she, we would ask her, hey, Caroline, where are you? And she'd say here, right? I mean, everything that you're not supposed to do with hide and go seek, she would do from the very outset, all right? She was awful at it. Adam and Eve are awful at playing hide and go seek, all right? Their, instinctual, uh, their instinct, though, in this moment when sin is in the picture is to learn to hide. They're hiding from one another. They're hiding from God. But notice how poor they are at it. They're awful at it, right? This is the most ridiculous game of hide-and-go-seek you will ever find. But it shows the absolute instinctual response they now have when sin has entered the picture. It's instinctive for human nature now in the midst of culture to want to take what is not ours and to want to hide from one another and from God. That's what sin does to the creation. It's what sin does to humanity. It's what sin does to culture as well. You and I were created and handed creation so that we would create and that we would cultivate in the task of culture. And instead, now here we are consuming, taking what is not ours and covering and hiding from one another and from God himself. This is a flipping of the script of what God intended from Genesis 1 as look at Genesis 3, now the lens on culture. 
This is such a different directive of what God intended. And here's the question. When sin enters the garden, how does it work? One of the first things you see is it's immediate, right? Uh, It hasn't taken one verse and they're already covering and they're already taking, right? In fact, we'll get into Genesis 4 and we'll see that it spirals out of control pretty fast with murder, right? They'll be making tools that will lead to murdering one another, all right? But in the garden, sin as it impacts culture is pretty immediate, but it's still incremental and kind of slow. The question becomes, as we look at Genesis 11 this morning, as we look at our culture at large as well, what happens when sin impacts culture, not in a garden, but in a city? What's the distinction between sin impacting culture in a garden and sin impacting culture in the city? How does it change? How does it change when we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11? What happens? I'd argue to you guys in many ways that what happens is that sin's impact on the cult in, in a garden is immediate but incremental, but in a city it is systematic and it is rapid. All right. In fact, Andy Crouch in his book, Making Culture, says this, and it's a book that we'll quote from a lot yesterday or last Sunday and even this Sunday. He says this, speaking of the city. He says, the city is where culture reaches critical mass, where culture overtakes nature as the dominant reality that human beings make something of. There's something going on in the city that allows sin as it impacts culture to move systematically and rapidly, all right? And so as you look in the cities, you'll see things that you may not even see in the rural areas of our country, right? There's something in the city that allows things to move at a macro level that doesn't occur in a garden or even in a rural area. You're going to see that as we move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. You're going to see things move at a systematic level that we didn't see in Genesis 3 or Genesis 4, all right? In fact, what you're going to see as we look at Genesis 11 and flip over to this passage that will be in the rest of the morning, flip over to Genesis 11. What you're going to see uh, from Genesis 3, Genesis 4 and on is you're going to see an amazing amount of alienation and separation. And what's really ironic as we start out in Genesis 11 is you're going to see an amazing amount of union. In the city, you're going to see humanity with a kind of union and camaraderie that you don't see in the rest of the previous chapters from Genesis 3 to 11. Notice what happens. Notice the amount of union in Genesis 11 beginning in verse one. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Linguistically, you have an amazing amount of union going on in Genesis 11. Not only that, but as they're traveling together, as they're making decisions about where they're going, where they're going to settle, amazing amount of union. How many of you guys have been on a road trip with your best friends and by the end of the road trip, you wanted to kill one another, right? (laughs) You're like, I don't think I want to be your friend anymore. It's been fun, right? But we need a little separation. Road trips can do that. But here is humanity at large traveling together with an amazing amount of linguistic and even residential union. They all decide together where they're going to stop, where they're going to eat. And notice verse three. And they said to one another, let us come make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Verse four, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Amazing amount of union, not just linguistically, not just residentially in their travel plans, but also with a project that they're going to undertake. All of humanity has come together in this one place. They've decided to settle and they've got a, 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 a task that they're going to share in common. They're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower. That's the goal. In fact, as you look at it, it's really interesting because I'd argue that sometimes unity can be very deceiving, right? You can have an incredibly mixture group of people who cannot get along, but what will bind them like nothing else? Hatred, right? (laughs) You can have an amazingly eclectic group of people, but if they have a common enemy, then all of a sudden, man, they are on the same page, right? How do you get 100,000 Aggies all in one place to agree upon one thing? Kyle Field. 2.30 yesterday, we all hate Nick Saban, Alabama, right? When there's a common enemy, we all unite, right? Well, what humanity is doing here in Genesis 11 is common, is a common enemy that's in front of them. You have amazing amount of union, but it's a union that's all about a rebellion that's going on. And this time it's not about the Antichrist that is Nick Saban, but it's about God himself. Sorry, I uh, couldn't resist, all right? Just trying to get out of my system too, all right? So, uh, so here's the deal. Genesis 11, amazing amount of union, but all of the people, all of humanity is having a union in common rebellion against God himself. Notice the text. Notice why they're building. Again, verse three, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Uh, and they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Verse four, they came and said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven Uh, So why? Why are they doing this? Some have argued, some commentators have said, why are they using brick and mortar? Why are they trying to build a giant tower? Of course, coming right out of the aftermath of the flood, it may be that the peoples of the nations were coming together saying, we don't trust that God God had said that I will not bring a flood again. Some have said that maybe they don't trust the words of God. 
and the promises of God. And so they're building a tower to survive a flood potentially. Uh, but even at that, if you have a giant tower, there's not a lot of people that can get to the top of the tower. And so what may be going on is not so much that as it is just a sheer step of pride. Notice how they describe the tower in verse four. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven. A tower whose top will reach into heaven. That ultimately what this city and this tower were was a statement of humanity's accomplishment. What humanity wanted to say was we don't need God. In fact, it wasn't just a statement of their independence. It was a statement of their dominance. It's not just that we don't need God. (laughs) Thank you for that flood. We don't need that anymore, right? In Genesis 7 but we're even better than you. We can provide for ourselves better than you can provide. And look what we can accomplish. Look at what we can do. Genesis 11, a city and a tower was all about a statement of independence from God and dominance over God. That's what the nations were saying in the midst of Genesis 11 at a systematic rapid level known as the city that we can support ourselves, that we can protect ourselves. We don't need God. In fact, we can accomplish things to reach God's heights. Wow. What a statement, right? What a sense of union of rebellion against God and his purposes and his character and what God was wanting the nations and the humanity to do. Remember, what did God tell, told, what did God told Adam and Eve and what did God told even Noah in Genesis 9? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And yet, what is humanity doing in Genesis 11? Have they spread over the earth? No, not at all. They've gathered in one place. Why? Why are they doing this? Notice the text again. Notice what uh, is said. Uh, Verse four, they came and said, let us build a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is a flipping of the script of Genesis one, right? God had told Adam and Eve, told humanity, here's your task. Rule on my behalf, fill the earth so that you can establish my glory over the face of the whole earth. Make my name great wherever you go. Instead, what is humanity doing? Instead of scattering and filling the whole earth, they gathered in one place to make a name for God. No, to make a name for themselves. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that moment where you thought you accomplished something incredibly great and someone came along and, <laughs> and you realized how pitiful your accomplishment was. Notice what God's going to do. I want you guys to see in a sense God's response here because ultimately God is going to flip this thing around. Andy Crouch, speaking of the city, will say this, that here's what Babel ultimately is. Babel became a completed cultural project, a city, whose entire purpose is to cover, to protect, and to shield its people from other human beings and from their creator. This is what Babel was. It was an attempt to make a name for themselves, not God. An attempt to protect themselves, and an attempt to show their own dominance of what they could do. It was, a, it was a pooling of all their capabilities, of all of their creativity to accomplish something that was a direct affront against God and all that God had told them. So the great question becomes when culture gets flipped upside down, when the creation and humanity gets flipped upside down because of sin, the great question becomes, what is God going to do? Is God going to come back down like he did at the flood and just smite the people and destroy them? What will he do? As you can suspect, his first response will be judgment. Notice what happens. Um, Notice what happens here uh, in verse, uh, where are we? Uh, In verse uh, five, he says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Verse seven, come, let us go down. What's fascinating here in the midst of this text is that God goes down to see the tower. Notice the irony, notice the sarcasm, right? (laughs) Notice what's being said. They think they've built a tower that will reach the heavens, but God has to come down just to see it. How preposterous is that, right? How crazy is that? It's a bit of a backhand, in a sense, sarcastic swipe at humanity to say, in the the midst of your best moment, God's saying, I'm not that impressed. I'm not that impressed at all. I have to come down just to see the tallest tower you can build. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, notice how God responds, not just with a sense of divine condescension, but even more so, he's going to bring human confusion. Notice the text, verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. God comes down and he confuses human language so that now you have many women speaking a whole set of different dialects and languages. Up until this time, Genesis 11 verse 1, they were speaking all the same language, using all the same words. But in the aftermath of this judgment, what God does is he brings about a confusion of human language. Uh, many will argue, uh, commentators will say that Genesis 11 records the distinction of ethnicities and the distinction of human languages. Genesis 11 tells us and explains why there's all these different people groups and why we can't get along or even understand one another at times. It's a step of judgment from God. 
But what's fascinating about the step of judgment, though, is that even in judgment, I think it's actually a sign of grace. That even in this step of judgment, it's actually a sign of grace. Well, why? Why is God's judgment a sign of grace here? God is not going to just confuse their languages, but he's going to also bring about human dispersion. I read this to you guys already. Look at verse eight. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. God's intent was not just to stop the building of the city that was meaningless and pointless, all right? It wasn't just to stop the rebellion, but God acts in judgment here in such a way to actually bring about a divine restoration. God is not through with them. Uh, I had an opportunity to live for a few years in East Asia. And in East Asia, we got around in all of life on bikes, all right? Uh, and so my first bike I ever bought was this bike that was intended to haul heavy stuff, all right? I looked around town. I saw all these people who would like have giant stuff all over their bike, and, uh, roped in bungee cords. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be able to just haul and be a man, all right? And so my wife, though, bought a speed bike, all right? So I got this bike that had like one gear, all right? And my wife had like 10 gears. And hers was incredibly light. Mine was incredibly heavy, all right? And so every single day, she would want to race and she would just toast me, all right? Every single time, which brought incredible shame to my life, all right? But not only that, this stupid bike would break down all the time, right? The chain would come off. I'd have to stop because I was getting toasted by my wife. Stop, fix the chain, right? Get grease all over the hands, but trying to get somewhere, right? And then I'd be late. It'd be so frustrating, all right? One of these times, finally, I said, I'm through with it. I'm done, all right? I took the bike. I just threw it down. I kicked it, all right? People are starting to symbol. I'm kind of maybe yelling loudly, maybe, at the bike, all right? An impersonal object, all right? And then at one point, I decided that's not enough, all right? So I have this moment of incredible strength, all right? I take the bike, I lift it, launch it in the air, and just toss it, all right, on a bush, all right? I've never felt so good in my life, all right? And then I just turn and I just walk away, all right? I'm just through with it. I'm done with it. This thing has frustrated me for the last time. And now people are just assembling it, gawking and wondering, what is the foreigner doing right now, all right? He's just lost his mind, all right? And I had, I had just lost my mind. I just took that thing and I scattered it to the four corners of the earth and I wanted nothing to do with it anymore, all right? Some of you guys have played board games. You get incredibly frustrated. At some point, there's this thought in your mind, what if you just took your arm and just went, Boom, right. Just knocked all the playing pieces off and everyone else would be absolutely upset, but your suffering and your torment would be over, right? Because you know where it's going, right? And I think for some of us, as we look at Genesis 11, God scatters humanity and we begin to wonder, hey, is God just kind of an angry guy on a game board going, man, this is just not working out, boom, right? Or is he a guy who's got a frustrating bike that's just not working like he wants it to and he's just throwing it and tossing it to the four corners of the earth and walking away? Is that what God's doing here? I don't think so. I think God is actually intentionally judging and intervening in human history in such a way, yes, out of judgment, right? But not the kind of judgment that is just punitive or the kind of judgment that says, I'm done with you. But God acts here in judgment in such a unique way that there's a divine restoration for humanity. God acts here in this judgment of human confusion and human dispersion in order to get humanity back on track of what God wanted them to do. Remember, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and reign over the creation. What do they do instead in the midst of their union? They, they assemble a common systematic rebellion against him, right? They build something that is not about his glory, but about their glory. And so God comes, he scatters them, brought the faces of the earth so that they will what? Be forgotten forever? No. So that they will ultimately then fulfill what God wanted them to do all the way back in Genesis 1. God is judging and acting here in Genesis 11 in such a way to bring about a restoration of humanity. And this judgment is not merely punitive. It is actually redemptive and gets humanity back on track. In fact, what God does here in Genesis 11 is a pattern we've seen God doing from Genesis 3 all the way to 11. And it's one of the great themes of Genesis 3 all the way to 11 in that part of Genesis is one of the, I think, one of the most powerful threads that gets woven throughout this, which is this. Humanity fails over and over and over again. But God sticks with humanity over and over and over again. That even in judgment, God comes and he shows a reaffirmation that he's not abandoning humanity and that he's sticking with humanity. How do we see that? Genesis 3, sin enters the picture for the first time. God judges Adam and Eve and throws them out of the garden. But as he's cursing them and as he's judging them, he utters to them a promise in Genesis 3.15. I don't have the time for you guys to look at it and kind of walk it through slowly. But ultimately in Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve, he says this, Satan has deceived you, but one will come forth from the seed of woman one day who will ultimately defeat Satan for one last time. We know Genesis 3.15 to be a prophecy speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ, one who will come forth from the seed of woman, born of a virgin Mary, right? Who will come and who will ultimately deal defeat to Satan. 
in the midst of judgment, God tells humanity in Genesis 3, I'm not done with you. In fact, I'm going to bring one forth from you who will ultimately get humanity back on track, who will bring about a fulfillment to all that I've designed, and who will defeat the great enemy, Satan, right? That's Genesis 3.15. The flood comes. God brings incredible judgment to a rampant immorality that had broken out throughout the entirety of the world. He floods the world. He starts over with Noah. And when Noah comes out of the ark, what does he say to Noah in Genesis 9? He says the exact same thing to Noah in Genesis 9 that he said to Adam in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. Why? That even in judgment, God is telling Noah and humanity and you and I is that even in the midst of our greatest failures, he's not done with us. (laughs) Even in that moment of judgment and with Noah, we see God is reaffirming to Noah that he's not changing the plan. God is going to work through humanity to accomplish his purposes and to establish his glory no matter how much humanity fails. Here we are in Genesis 11, worldwide rebellion centered in one city, the first city we ever see in the Bible. Incredible moment of rebellion against God. God comes and he judges, yes. But even in that judgment, there's reaffirmation that he's not done with humanity, he's sticking with humanity. Over and over again, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, humanity throws a monkey wrench right into the mix of what God wants to do, but God does not say, forget you. I can't deal with you. God shows over and over again that he's going to stick with humanity and he's going to bring about a redemption and a hope and a fulfillment of all of his promises through a broken and weak vessel, which is you and I. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? That's the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have failed miserably what God intended for our lives. And yet God loved us so magnificently, so graciously, so kindly that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh and to die a death and to receive a punishment that should have been ours. And then in doing that death and in his resurrection, he shows he has proof over death and life and that he offers to you and I an absolutely free gift, one of grace, not on the basis of what you can do, what you can merit, because you can merit nothing because we are failures of what God ultimately wanted. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when and how bad will we fail, God, right? Don't look long, don't wait long before you see failure in each one of our lives, right? We're reminded of that every single day. But we are not what God wanted us to be. Our culture is not what God wanted it to be. And yet what God shows you and I over and over again in his grace and in his mercy is that he's sticking with us no matter how much we failed. And that he's not saying, forget you. I'll figure out how to do this otherwise. He shows us over and over again that he's going to use humanity, a broken, a weak, a failed vessel to accomplish his purposes, no matter how large they are, no matter how big our failures are. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the amazing grace of God that he sticks with us, even in the midst of our greatest failures. Let me ask you, do you think you are beyond the grace of God? Do you think that your failures and your past determine what he can do with you in your future? Because if you do, that's exactly what Genesis 3 to 11 is not saying. (laughs) You cannot have more cataclysmic, more highlight real moments of failure for humanity than what we get in Genesis 3, a flood later on in Genesis 7 and 9, and then a tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This is the highlight reel of man's failures. This is how bad man can get, right? And you have your own highlight reel, but if God sticks with humanity at a macro level, then why won't he stick with you at a micro level? Why do you think that you are an exception? Why do you think that you are beyond the grace of God? That's the beauty of what God does here in Genesis 11. In fact, in Genesis 12, what we'll see is that God will begin to move to redeem culture and to redeem his world in a way that we never would have imagined. In Genesis 11, you have an incredible cultural rebellion, a cultural problem that God will solve in Genesis 12 with a cultural solution. What does God do in Genesis 12? He calls forth one man. In a sense, a new Adam, in a sense, a new Noah, one man named Abraham. Abraham, they'll come from, who will be a pagan from a pagan land, actually that's centered in the land of Shinar, where this rebellion occurred. And what he's going to do in and through Abraham will show that he will bring a cultural solution to a cultural problem. He will take one man, and of this one man, he will make him a great name, and ultimately, and later on, a great nation. That what God does with the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that we see that God is working within culture, within time, to bring about a redemption of not just humanity, but the world and the creation and the culture at large. What is a nation? A nation is culture over time, right? What God does is working within culture to show us that he's not forgotten us and he's not forgotten the culture. He cares about humanity and he cares about the culture and he's working to redeem both. But God's way of redeeming, God's way of working is always so incredibly different than ours and so incredibly different than our own expectations. 
God chooses Israel, which according to Deuteronomy 7 is the least of the nations, the fewest of the peoples. As God looked at all the people groups that he had scattered, he chooses the runt of the nations, the runt of the people groups, okay? In fact, it's not just what God does with the nation of Israel. It's what God does even with the Savior himself, Jesus Christ, who comes in the form of a manger and then dies a criminal's death. Whether it's Israel or whether it's Jesus, we see a great pursuit of humility in order to change culture and to change humanity. God shows up in a humble way, in a way and works in a way of humility that we never would have imagined. Even the church is that, right? What is the church? Paul describes the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's you and I, if you know Jesus Christ. <laughs> it makes you feel great, right? Uh, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong so that no man may boast. What is the church? It's a step and a move of God of great humility, taking the least to accomplish the most. It's what God does over and over and over again. In the midst of our greatest failures, he sticks with us and then he chooses the least to accomplish the most so that when he works and moves culture back to where he wanted it to be, there's no mistake about who did it. God. God always moves and works in a manner of humility that is way beyond anything that we think moves the needle in terms of culture. God always works in a sense of what we might think of as countercultural, right? He doesn't show up in great power. He doesn't show up in great prestige. He doesn't show up in great respect. He shows up in incredibly humble ways. And I think the manner that he responds to humanity's failures in Genesis 11, the way that he responds to culture that's been corrupted, provides you and I a trajectory for how we're to respond as well. So what are you and I to do? How are you and I to work? Let me give you guys one basic example and one basic, two basic ideas, all right? First is this, pursue humility. All right, I told you guys that uh, culture is what you and I make of the world and what God had done is he had called you and I to create and cultivate for his glory. But when sin impacts culture, what happens? We have an innate tendency to consume and to cover, all right? An innate tendency to consume, to take what is not ours and to cover and to hide from one another and to hide from God. So how do we work against those things? What are two practical ways that we can work against the tendency to consume and the tendency to co- cover? One is to pursue humility. Humility is always a move away from consumption, away from a selfish instant gratification kind of thing, all right? In fact, uh, St. Augustine, I think with the idea of Genesis 11 in the backdrop, says this regarding humility. He says, do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. Do you plan a tower to pierce this clouds that lay first the foundation of humility? I love that quote. Do you want to be great? Then be small. Do you want to accomplish something absolutely huge and mammoth? Then bend low. That's so counter our instinct now, right? What is our instinct to make huge cultural impact? It is to be great, it's to accomplish much, it's to push hard, strong, and be powerful. And what we see over and over again of how God works within the cultural arena and what he's calling you and I to is a kind of move that is utterly sacrificial and utterly humble. And that is actually what ends up moving the needle and brings about an accomplishment and a legacy that far outlasts names on buildings. You and I think that to change culture, you have to be great. You've got to have the kind of stature, the kind of status that you can put names on buildings, but the reality is in the grand scheme of those things, those things disappear and they are forgotten. The great wonder, I think, of what's happening here in Genesis 11 is think about the irony of what ends up happening in the aftermath of Genesis 11. Babel, which was supposed to be the center of civilization, becomes what? The center of confusion, right? In the pursuit to be great, there was, there was an expectation to accomplish much, but what ends up happening is they're absolutely confused and scattered, right? They become insignificant. They become a byword. Not only that, but think about Nimrod in Genesis 10. We find that Nimrod was the patriarch of the family that moved all the nations together in, uh, uh, in the land of Shinar and led to this rebellion. Nimrod in Genesis 10 is seen to be the patriarch. His name is associated with the name of a great valiant warrior, but what does he become in the aftermath of this? A byword, a curse word for when we want to talk about someone as an idiot. What an absolute Nimrod, right? That's what happens. In the move to greatness, in the move to pride and self-autonomy, there's always, therefore, in the aftermath of that, incredible confusion and incredible insignificance in the long term. How do you and I have a legacy that marks for all of eternity? It says you and I bend low and as we serve and we give our lives away, not as we try to grab and as we try to consume. That's not how we find legacies. That's not how we find an impact. 
Well, how, uh, how do we grow humility? I think humility is this kind of concept that we kind of have our hands around, but we really don't sometimes have a sense of really how you do it or how you grow it. Uh, incredible book for some of you guys, if you've not read it, is Andrew Murray's book, Humility, all right? A quote comes from it, and he says this, that it is not sin that humbles most, but grace. And that it is the soul that is led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God in his wonderful glory as creator and redeemer that will truly take the lowest place before him. I think for some of you guys, you have no problem with humility, but it's actually pity. (laughs) You have no problem seeing your own limitations, your own inadequacies, your own issues. That's really not what humility is. For some of us, we're incredibly arrogant and we have no problem singing our praises, right? We kind of fall on two spectrums. Either we are incredibly self-confident or we are incredibly self-critical. We typically fall on either sides. But neither are really solutions that move us toward humility. How do you and I move toward humility? It's not that should we sit here and we just beat ourselves up and name all of our issues and all of our sins, right? Uh, ultimately, how do you and I move toward humility? It's not with a sense of our smallness, but it's a sense with God's greatness, right? It's not just beating ourselves up that lead to humility, but it's with a, a better sense of the perspective of how glorious and how majestic God is that then gives us a real adequate and accurate sense of who we are that then really truly leads us toward humility. It's a whole different step toward humility, a whole different way to grow in humility. And so the question is, again, how big is your God? How great is your God? Do you have a God that sticks with you even in the midst of difficulties? Or do you have a God who says, like a parent who's frustrated, I'm through, (laughs) Uh, I'm done. Is your God so gracious and so merciful and so glorious that he can accomplish his purposes even through the most broken, weak, and failing vessels? That's the God of the Bible. And that's the kind of God that really gives you a sense of who you are and allows you to begin to really pursue humility. If that's how you grow it, then where can you act it out? Where can you highlight it and where can you serve in that kind of way? I want to give you guys a couple practical ideas of where this week you guys can grow and not just grow, but also practice humility. Where can you serve? I want to ask you guys to begin to think through where are some areas in your lives that you could serve where no one is watching? What are some arenas of your life where you can serve where no one's going to pat you in the back and it's not a way to make a move up in terms of notoriety and significance? Who are those in your life that really have no means to pay you back? A couple of areas that I'd highlight for you guys in terms of where you can serve and how you can serve would be two areas in our culture at large. One is with the poor, right? The poor will not pat you on the back. They will not build your self-worth. They will not add to your significance, right? As we move into the culture at large in terms of social justice and poverty, a topic we'll look at way more later on in our semester. It's a great way for us to serve in utter humility, making much of the least, making much of those that cannot pay, back, pay us back. And as we do that, we have an opportunity to show the love and the grace of God. Some of you guys may know that in our community at large, we have a couple ways that we do that, uh, not just with the poor, but I want to even highlight for you guys as you think about ministry, even amongst kids, all right? I'll tell you guys, as a parent, there is no more thankless job (laughs) than being a parent, all right? There is no more sacrificial, sometimes challenging, sometimes redeeming, sometimes uh, highlighting of your sin than when you were spending time with little kids, all right? Uh, It's also one of the greatest joys, all right? So you should think about it later on, all right? So here's the deal. Uh, Where can you serve with kids, though? I'll tell you guys, I think finding an opportunity to serve with the least, with those who are most little, provides you a way of growing in humility and provides you a way to actually act that out. A couple ways I'd say to challenge you guys to think about doing that in terms of not just the poor, but with kids. Think about in the community at large and then think about at the church, all right? In the community at large, how can you move toward the community to show those that are made the least of that they're made much of? Whether it's with poor or with kids, where can you do that? Some of you guys may know, even in our own church, we have a ministry called Youth Impact that is engaged with uh, underprivileged kids, all right? Incredible ministry doing incredible things, not just in the four walls of the church, trying to draw and attract people to us, but in the community at large. Uh, if you guys want to get involved in that, I'll tell you guys, it is refining, it is redemptive, and it is incredibly powerful and impacting our community in ways that our church may not even have a, re- a realistic sense of, all right? Uh, if you guys want to know more about that, come talk to me afterwards. Applications for that ministry are actually due today, all right? So if you want to jump in, time is ticking on that. Another way that I'd say, not just in the community at large, but even in our church specifically, that you can get involved and that you can serve is actually with our children's ministry, all right? So some of you guys... Uh, may have a heart already to serve kids. And I'd say this is a great spot to serve where no one notices, where no one pats you in the back and where the fruit of your ministry and your service is not seen for years. Okay. Uh, I'll also tell you guys, there's an incredible win and payoff of that. If you want to be in the vol- involved in the life of the church, if you want to know families, this is one of the best spots to do that. I want to challenge you guys, whether you have a heart to do it or whether you want to just pray about it, let me challenge you. Just consider, hey, would God have me serve in this kind of way? 
whether it's children's ministry here at Grace, whether it's youth impact in our community, or whether it's any other organization or ministry that's there in our community, how can you serve amongst the least of those? How can you serve where no one's watching, where no one even has the means to pat you on the back, where no one even has the means to add to your worth? How can you do that this week? I'm challenge you to pray for and look for opportunities because so much of what we think and so much of the way that we act is to take what is not ours and to think about our lives, what is instantly gratifying. I want to challenge you to begin to relearn that t- technique and, and to get that innate tendency out of the system by serving amongst the least. I'll tell you guys, there's no place where that challenge is seen more greatly than when you get to serve amongst the poor or amongst kids. And let me challenge you to consider that. Second of all, I'd say uh, not just to move against this tendency to consume, but against the tendency to cover, all right? I want to challenge you guys to think about stop hiding and to be known. Uh, I was fascinated. Some of you guys may know this week that uh, this week on Thursday was the one-year anniversary of Lene Kakua's death, all right? Some of you guys may know who that is, all right? It was Monte Teo's imaginary girlfriend who died, right? But she didn't exist. It was just an online, uh, ex- uh, online relationship of someone who was posing as a girl. Horrible story, all right? Uh, and so someone tweeted even this week, God rest her. Uh, she died even before she, before she started living, right? I mean, just like, oh my gosh, right? Uh, some of you guys know that story, but I was just thinking even in our, in our, in our culture at large, as you think about technology, as you think about media, we'll talk way more about this even next week and the upcoming weeks. So much of our culture exists so that you can hide and not be known. That story last year baffled us because how can someone have a relationship with an imaginary person that they've never even met, right? Technology allows us at times to hide from one another. Uh, there's a guy named Sammy Rhodes who's kind of become a Twitter sensation. He kind of got off of Twitter because it kind of became a distraction to a ministry that he was involved in. But one of my favorite uh, tweets he put up at one point was that he had just finished a conversation with someone without looking at his iPhone. And maybe he should get a Nobel Peace Prize, right? <laughs> there's this tendency now with technology and everything about us that is changing the way that we relate to one another. I want to challenge you as you think about your life, as you think about the way that you deal with technology, as you think about your relationships, what are the ways that you're choosing to hide from one another? One of the ways that you're choosing to be known. There is an innate tendency in each one of us, whether it's outside in a world that threatens us or even supposedly inside of a church that is supposed to be a safe place that we have an innate tendency to hide, to not want to be known. I want to challenge you to think through this week, how can you move against that? Uh, Not just uh, in the community. I want to challenge you to think about, hey, how can you step in the community and can you be known? Maybe that's a campus organization that's not overtly Christian and spiritual, but it's a place to serve in the community and to be known by the community. And do you have any friends that have a different viewpoint on God and the Bible than you? Or have you assembled your whole circle of friends in such a way that they all agree with you? Are you not being known by the community at large, really? Uh, Is there a campus organization? Is there an intramural sports team? Is there some common hobby interest group on campus or in the community that you could join that you would enjoy, but that you would have an opportunity to build a relationship with at a larger level? And not just there, but also in the church too. The church is meant to be a safe place for us to be known, for us to come clean with, hey, here's where we are. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm dealing with. But I think there's a sense within us, even in a church setting, that we need to be certain things, right? We need to have a certain look. We need to act a certain way. We need to act like we have it all together. The reality is every single one of us is broken, we're messed up, we're dealing with junk, we have insecurities, we have inadequacies. And the question is, does anyone really know you? Or are you dealing with social media? Are you dealing with relationships? Are you dealing with communities and organizations and even churches in a way that you're constantly keeping people out? Who really knows you? Or have you so built up barricades around you to protect you that no one really knows you? The irony of that is it's a slow isolating death. (laughs) We think we're protecting ourselves, but in reality, we're not being able to live out the way we've been designed to live, which is to be known and to live in community. There's awesome opportunities, not just in our community, but even in our church in the midst of small groups to do that, to be known. And our great heartbeat and our great hope for you guys here that are visiting on Sunday morning, that you guys would eventually get into our small groups, that you would find community, whether it's here in our church, whether it's a Christian organization on campus, that you would find some people that would truly know you just as you are. They wouldn't have the expectation that you'd have to clean up, that you'd have to pose, that you'd have to be something different. That was what high school was always from so many of us, right? To pose and to try to be something so that we would be accepted and liked. Hopefully in this phase of life, you guys are finding community that allows you to be just who you are, who God has magnificently designed you to be. That you're not having to pose to be something different. Have you found that kind of community yet? Are you even seeking that kind of community? 
I'll tell you the greatest gift for me as I walked out of college was I had a group of guys that would stand with me on my wedding day. They would still be with me now, even now, that I talk with consistently, but a group of guys who knew me as I was and who called me forward <laughs> and challenged me to grow. The guys who knew everything I was dealing with, everything that I thought, everything that I felt, and I found a place where I found incredible community and incredible love. That's what the church is supposed to be. And yet for so many of us, we have either withdrawn from the community at large and hold up with one another, or even as we've hold up with one another, we've not even allowed ourselves to be known by one another. When sin enters culture, there's a unique and innate tendency for us to consume and to take what is not ours and to cover and to hide from one another and to hide from God. One challenge as you look at your life, as you look at different arenas that we'll talk about in the coming weeks, whether it's politics, economics, sexuality, we'll look at it from that grid from the grid of how are we taking what is not ours at times that we should not be taking it or how are we ultimately covering and hiding from one another even in the midst of those arenas. That's where we're going to head as we walk through the semester. This is going to be kind of a lens that we'll look at, but this is what sin does to culture. It causes us to cover and it causes us to consume and yet even in the midst of that, God comes and he shows us a grace even in his judgment against sin that shows us that he's going to stick with us. And he's trying to move us, not just to a relationship with him, maybe for the first time, but to a place where our lives are being transformed and brought back to a restoration of all that he intended us to be and all the glory and all the beauty and all the fullness of all that he intended us to be and how we were to live. That's the beauty of God's grace. That's the beauty of what he's done, that you cannot escape his grace. You cannot escape his love. It does not cease. It does not end. And even to that matter, I want to end this morning and give you guys an opportunity just to respond in worship. Uh, the guys are going to come back up and we're going to have an opportunity just to think through the very love of God, how powerful it is, what it's done and what it means to us. For some of you guys, you may want to respond, you may want to sing, or you may want to just be silent, you may want to reflect. Either way, I'd love for you guys to create some space as we wrap up this morning for you guys just to come before the Lord and to really wrestle with, hey God, what is it you have for me to hear? We've been all over the map this morning, but what is it you really want to zero in for me to hear? How is it you want to work in my life? What are you saying to me? How is it you want me to walk out of this place and walk into this week in a different kind of way? What are the areas that I consume? What are the areas that I cover and hide? And how can I live differently this week? His grace and his love is amazing. And let us reflect on that. Father God, we just thank you this morning for your incredible grace and that you would look upon us with incredible favor. And I pray this morning, even as we take off, as we walk into this week, Lord, allow us to see your glory. Allow our hearts to be so captured that we would not fail to see how majestic and how powerful you are. Father, as a new week comes crashing back in, as new issues come crashing back in, Lord, I pray you allow us to maintain that glimpse and that you'd retrain the way that we see our issues. You'd retrain the way that we see ourselves as you see us. And that you are so incredibly patient, even in the midst of our failures, because you so desperately desire to use us for your purposes. And I pray that our lives would reflect that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. That even in the midst of our tendency to consume and cover, you are one who is given and one who is revealed. And Father, I pray that you would draw us deeper to know you more clearly, more powerfully, and that you would allow our lives to be more and more honoring to you. In the different arenas that you've called us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.